Whether you're taking a rip down the lease road in your jacked-up truck or flying first class to Houston, Texas, it's time to sit back and relax for another exciting episode of Oil & Gas Onshore. This episode is brought to you by Tendeka, a global specialist in advanced completions and production solutions for the oil and gas industry. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Justin Gauthier. Welcome to this week's episode of Oil & Gas Onshore. I'm here this afternoon with Mr. Jim Adams, CEO of Eagle Resources Corporation. Jim, thanks for coming on to the show. Well, thank you for having me, Justin. Certainly. Firstly, I'm trying to find a, a way to send some warm weather your way. I heard there's some uh, serious cold weather happening up north. Yeah, it's supposed to be about uh, seven below tonight. And this next two or three days, is it's crazy. It's going to be below zero, and then it's going to be 40 by the weekend. Wow. So go, go figure what, what's going on. Yeah, there's crazy weather patterns happening everywhere, so we just have to be prepared for all of it. So, uh, look, this is an interesting episode, actually, and, and one of the reasons I love what we're doing here at Oil & Gas Global Network. So one of the – and for the audience, how we came about getting uh, Jim on here with Eagle Resources Corporation is one of the guys that works with him at, at his company – listens to our show, or our sister's show rather, Oil & Gas This Week, and reached out to us offering their company as a resource for an interview on the state of drilling in North Dakota and Montana. They mentioned that their team has found significant potential in the Lodgepole Reefs in 2019. And for listeners who aren't familiar, and Jim, please feel free to interrupt me if I'm wrong, but the Lodgepole Reef is a formation which lies just above the Bakken Shale, if my geology memory serves me correctly. Uh, and this play was initially explored, I believe, in the 90s. And I did a little research, and I found that there was a conventional well spudded in 96 called the Dinsdale 2-4 with an initial production of a little bit over 3,300 barrels of oil per day. In 96, I mean, we had not even heard of horizontal drilling, much less fracture stimulation. Is my research correct there, Jim? It is, Justin. In 95, the geologist, uh, Auckland, had basically uh, found that, that log pool formation. And before his work, he and another gentleman received an award from the Montana Geological Society as to the excellent work he did in finding that formation. It was developed over the next 10 years, and there's probably been about 45 million barrels of oil recovered out of that field. It was abandoned, really, for the Balkan, and people walked away from it, even though there's still extensions in that field. Well, we were able to go back in with uh, some 3D seismic and some reprocessing of 2D seismic, and we've identified some more locations that we feel that have some great potential. It's always easy to go back and look at successful wells and figure out why they were, and then apply that information to the future drilling. So that's that's why we feel very confident that we're going to we, we feel about 90, 90% confident level that we're going to find some successful wells. You know, it's not like shooting d ducks in a barrel, but at least we got some clear water to see the ducks. <laughs> So. Right, right. Well, uh, look, before we move on, tell us a little bit about your backstory before life in the oil field and, and kind of the road that led you to CEO of Eagle Resources Corporation. Well, basically, I started with Price Waterhouse in the accounting field and then went on to consolidate natural gas and spent about 10 years there in the various oil and gas exploration, 
development, uh, spent some time down in Louisiana, and then left Consolidated, which was the parent company for Peoples and CNG Development and CNG Exploration, and went on our, my own with a company called Angerman Associates. There I was a chief financial officer, and we basically started developing shallow wells in the Appalachian Basin, which is Pennsylvania. In 86, we bought, oh, 45,000 acres from Chevron when they bought Gulf Oil. Chevron was not interested in the Gulf Oil acreage in Pennsylvania. We picked that up and we developed that over the next 10 years. That company was eventually sold for about $35 million. Mr. Angerman then retired. But then I started, did some consulting work for a couple of years, but then bought Eagle Resources in 93. Eagle was actually started in 83 by another gentleman developing shallow wells. In 93, when I took it over, we continued to do the development of shallow natural gas wells. That was working very, you know, very favorably through the next 20 years. But at the onset of the Marcellus Shale, is when we really ran into some difficulties. The large companies started to come in when the discovery of Marcel Shale by Range Resources changed the whole industry here in Pennsylvania. The wells became very expensive. They started putting $4,500 for acreage per acre. We were used to paying $20 an acre. They ate up all the acreage in the whole Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia area very quickly. And as a result, they've monopolized that their drilling. What's the cost right now on acreage up it's there? It's still in the twenty-five yeah. to three thousand dollar range. I know that there's people you know have lost some of their acreage. They're really defining where the good acreage is, and that's they're still getting forty-five hundred dollars in Washington County and some other acreage up in the northeast part of Pennsylvania. So it's a you know it's still a pretty lucrative play. Some of the wells, the deep wells that they, the Equitable is finding have returns of uh, three to four months of their investment. I mean, they're that big. They're huge. Wow. There was one well. I, incredible. <laughs> I was talking to the CEO of, of Equitable one time. He told me they were doing a well that was doing 33 million MCFs a day. That was more reserves than we found in all of the wells wow. we drilled in 20 years. I mean, it's a phenomenal amount. That's the amount of hydrocarbons that we sit on here in the United States is, is astronomical. It's hard to wrap your head around those numbers. It really is. Well, what is interesting is the really the technological changes that occurred in the last 10 years. The 3D seismic and the directional drilling and being able to, you know, do the directional drilling and directional fracking. I mean, fracking's been around for 40 years, but to be able to do that on a horizontal lateral that's you know almost five thousand feet long, is just a phenomenal feat of engineering. I mean that really changed. We in the last thirty years we always knew that the the Marcellus, you know, we called it Medina. We there were different names on it, but we knew that the the gas was in the shale because we were able to drill shale wells and we would find a, a great producing well, and we'd go two hundred feet to the right or two hundred feet to the left. And we'd get nothing. And it was in those fissions in the shale is where all the gas was. It was where it was migrating up to the sandstones, which was what the shallow wells were developing. Well, once they were able to directionally drill through those fissions, 
and there were multiple fissions in a 5,000-foot lateral, that's where they were getting the gas. It wasn't inside the shale. It was beside the shale. So, it, you know, once they discovered that and they were able to do that, uh, range resources, I knew the geologists. I'll never forget it. This was back in, I think, 90, 2003, 2004. I went into range resources office one time. I was talking to geologists, and they had a uh, picture on the wall. And a look at a parking lot of a truck yard. Well, I went into the geologist and I asked him, I said, what, did, you know, this is an oil and gas company. What do you got a picture of a truck yard in the lobby for? He says, that's not a truck yard. He says, that's a frack job. <laughs> they says, they look what? similar, actually. <laughs> there were 40 trucks on location. I says, you got to be kidding me. I says, no. He says, you know, there, there was millions of gallons of water being pumped into the ground and then that first frack job. And they've come a long way to, you know, in that whole process, but they're still using four to five million gallons of water for every frack. And the water business up in Pennsylvania has really changed a lot too in the way that they frack wells. Heck, when we fracked a well, we took the water out of the pit and had one truck and one pumper, a <laughs> sand truck, and that was it. <laughs> right. And how long would it typically take you guys to frack those wells? Those wells were only about five or six hours. I mean, you know, they were, and that was multiple stage too. We were doing five or six stages, and they were, you know, we might start early in the morning at six in the morning and be done by four or five, depending on how quickly the formations right. broke down. But the sands, you know, the sandstones, you know, fracked, you know, sometimes they'd be tight, but they were considered tight sands. Typical wells in that lower formations would range anywhere from two to 300 total reserve, you know, over the life of the well. We're paying $20 an acre. These new wells, they have two or three BCFs per well. I mean, they're right. just huge. That's, that's incredible. Hey, I want to take a little bit of a, of a shift here. Tell us a little bit about uh, Eagle Resources Corporation and, and what you currently do and the plan forward for you guys over there. Eagle Resources is reinventing itself in the sense that with all of our technical expertise that we have, instead of being, being an operator per se, we're going to look for companies such as Freedom Energy Resources that have opportunities. And these opportunities are in various areas of the United States. This one just happens to be in the uh, North Dakota area, in Stark County, in the log pole formation. We're going to seek these out and try to place these so that investors, ordinary investors, can participate in some of these large wells. I mean, typically, these wells are, are really earmarked for major corporations. We're looking for 2 million barrels of oil in one well. I mean, that's not a typical independent oil and gas well. No kidding. That's something, yeah, that's something that the majors would be looking for. So, But by opening it up to investors, they're going to get that opportunity to get two to three times their invest, investment back. Okay. In short- so in... in- that's not something I'm too familiar with, but how does a company like yourself go out and, and search for investors like that? What does that look like? Well, we will use a Reg D formation or Reg D filing. And basically what that is, it's a limited partnership. And what we do is we, we'll, we'll the, our company will buy all the tangible assets. So if we take 50% of the well, we'll take 20% of that is for the intangible or the tangible assets, the pipe, the head, wellhead, all the hard goods. 
The investor, on the other hand, will get all the intangibles, which create a tax deduction. Those tax deductions are still solid. They've been there for the last 40 years. And we give that to the investor so they get an immediate tax write-off. Those are things that the majors really don't need. They, they don't need tax deductions like, like that. Investors do. And this way, it gives a very good vehicle for funding smaller operators such as Freedom Energy. It helps the investors in a sense that we get a, a tax shelter in the sense that they could write this investment off $100,000 on any type of form of, of income. Okay, and then their returns are very substantial. At $26 a barrel, and the lowest amount of reserves that we've estimated for this project, they're going to get 100% t- uh, rate of return. Wow. We're as, we're anticipating the rate of return on this project is going to be 180%. 180%. Is that, is, that quite com- is that quite common, or is that something that's quite unique to, no, to this no. application? It, it's unique to the sense that when we look for these high potential wells, those are the type of returns you can expect. And that's what we're looking for. We're not looking for the shallow, low-risk type of things. We're going to try to solve the risk equation by using 3D seismic and using science to help us in determining where these locations are. For example, in the log pool formation, we looked at 42 successful wells, or 42 wells. We looked at the successful wells and figured out that there was four attributes that every one of those successful wells had. When you have those, all four of those attributes there in the 3D seismic, you have a good well. Well, we've found locations in that same Stark County where you have these four attributes present. Interesting. So it's kind of a stacked play. And, and I guess one of the questions I have is it sounds very attractive, to which poses my question is how come more operators aren't sort of aren't active in that play? Is there something that hasn't really sort of fit the mold recently? Or is it just because the Bakken's kind of got the sex appeal and the numbers for it to make business sense? Or, or what? why do you think it's not active right now? Well, I think that's, I think you hit the nail on the head and that's because the sex appeals with the Bakken and everybody is chasing that. And their mindset is to go look at those. We're going back into old successful fields and trying to figure out how those fields extend. Now, there's no directional drilling on this. It's strictly a, a vertical well. But the Bakken is where there's huge reserves being found. And, you know, everyone's chasing that. It seems that, you know, this formation, in revisiting these old fields, I've done this in Pennsylvania also. You know, you have to really take the success of the, of the area and look why were those wells successful. And then if you can interpret that into other locations, that is where you're going to get other additional successful wells. That's what we're doing here in uh, North Dakota. Interesting. Well, uh, Jim, I want to take a quick break and ask the listeners, everyone out there listening, please do me a huge favor and take a few minutes to leave a review. That would certainly help. Jim, again, so if people are sort of interested in this play or wanting to reach out to you, how, how would how would someone uh, become active and, and start looking into doing something like this? Well, we detail all of this information on our website. It's under Eagle Reese Corp. It's Eagle, R-E-S-C-O-R-P dot com. On that website, there's a section under investment login. 
that you could actually request for the passcodes and the usernames. The username is Access Eagle. All right. And then in the login is EDV2019LP. And once you're into that investor login section, there's a presentation there that shows you exactly where we're drilling, why we want to drill this area, what data we looked at to determine where to drill, all the seismic that's been run. I mean, there was an extensive amount of uh, 3D seismic that was run to determine you know, the, the exact location, locations. And then uh, there's an investment side of it. There's uh, partnership agreements. All the agreements are there that you can review. And at the end of that, I think it's Exhibit H, is a subscription agreement. This is only for accredited investors, I might add that. Okay. Because it, it's not for you know the small investor. This is for somebody that understands risk, understands the risk-reward you know, that can occur with oil and gas. Right. And of course, just to kind of help educate the audience, people who are familiar with this type of business understand probably the numbers that you talk about. Are you comfortable with saying roughly what something like this would cost to invest in? Or is that something that's privately held and just requires meetings and whatnot? Well, no, the, the we're offering these investments. We're looking for about $4.2 million to get 45% working interest in these wells. You could do it in increments of 100000 It's up to the individual as to exactly how much they want to invest. As long as they're accredited, we'll take investments of whatever size they like. It's a really, we try to gear it towards investors. We try to be investor friendly as much as we can. Okay, of course. That's our goal. Okay. Because it's, it's to try to take these, these large producing wells and make it accessible to those individuals who normally wouldn't have access to it. That makes sense. Is there anything else regarding this formation or this area that you would like to highlight? Yes. It, it, this is only the beginning of it. We've identified probably about 10 or 12 more locations. So people participating in these first two could participate in the future development. We're showing that you know these wells probably will produce about 60% of the reserves in the first five years. And then at that point, we also want to offer our investors a way out. I mean, people like to invest in things that have a finite timeline. In five years, what we'd like to do, if they're willing and if they want to sell out, and only to 10% of the partnership, because if you buy out more than 10% of the partnership, it's no longer a partnership. Right. What we would do is, you know, we would would take uh, and pay three times cash flow. So whatever your cash flow is in the fifth year, if it's $100,000, we'll give you 300000 So you have eight years worth of income in a five-year time frame. Okay. That's voluntary. You know, not gotcha. mandatory. That makes sense. Well, look, unless there's anything else you'd like to say, I wanted to give an opportunity for our sponsor giveaway. So Tendeka is known for its innovation in advanced completions and production optimization. And speaking of innovation, how cool is this? A mini portable projector for all your techies out there. It's a goodie mini LED projector, perfect for home theater, boardroom, office, and pocket video, which supports HDMI, smartphone, PC, or laptop, USB for movie and games. And for a chance to win, head over to www.tendeka.com 
forward slash podcast giveaway. And Tendeka is spelled T-E-N-D-E-K-A. And Jim, I wanted to take a little bit of time and ask you a couple more personal questions, if you don't mind. No, no, Do you have any daily routines that help you stay focused and motivated as CEO of a company? Because not very many people get to get the chance to hear the ins and outs and what, what makes people like yourself tick. Well, you know, I've been doing this so long, Justin, it's second nature to me. Uh, between the physical workouts at the gym and trying to stay you know, as focused as I can, I guess it's really a personal trait that a lot of people like myself have that are motivated to, to lead and help people. It, it's that desire to actually teach people, to help people, that really drives an executive. I mean, that's what an executive is. He's, he's a teacher. He loves to be able to help people see, be successful. Once right. in doing that, then that brings the whole organization to be successful. You know, motivation is, is all about taking people to giving them the opportunity to succeed. Yeah. And that's no, what we that's, try to, oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, but, go ahead. But, uh, you know, and I love hearing that because so much, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are scared to give up information or to help other people succeed and fear that they'll overstep them. And because a lot of times their ego gets in the way, but having that type of leadership uh, in, in that type of, especially in a role like yourself, I mean, that goes a long ways and it helps create a good culture within within the company. So I'd imagine everyone over at Eagle Resources Corporation is very satisfied. It sounds like you guys are doing a lot of great things. What's your favorite activity or hobby outside of, of oil and gas or as a CEO of a company? Well, the physical activity is golf. Fantastic. I love to play golf. I've played it, uh, played it for years. Used to be a member at Oakmont Country Club, and <laughs> there was a funny story when, when in 94, the Oakmont Country Club here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, is famous for having the U.S. Open. I think we've had it more than any other country club in, in the United States. And as a member of that in 94, the greens and the rough are extremely deep. The greens are extremely fast and the sand traps are just unbearable. Well, the week before the open, a bunch of us said, we're going to play this just like the pros do. So we played it for oh, wow. five days. Every day would go out. Every day would go out just like a regular tournament. Practice round and then four tournaments. And then we went <laughs> at the end of that, we were, blocked out from playing it the next uh, week. What happened the first day that uh, Tiger Woods and all the people came onto the thing, they start complaining about the course. They cut the green or they cut the greens, slowed up the greens and they cut the rough. I said, you bunch of wimps. <laughs> we played this course in the toughest condition there is. And then to give you an idea, when you watch golf on Sunday afternoon, you see the, the I think it was the, uh, the last one, on Sunday, they were 19 under par. The winning score at Oakmont that year was two under par after four rounds of golf. Wow. Do you remember what your score was playing? Oh, I'm 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 nowhere in that range. <laughs> I'm like in the 70s or something. Like that. I might be two or three over par. Uh, they, par but that's I, yeah. still very commendable. I wouldn't be shy about that one. Well, you get used to the course. So we understand and we know where the, there, there are certain things on the course that it just baffles you as to the greens. The whole interesting thing about the Oakland Country Club was it was actually built on top of a sand and gravel pit. So the underlying soil was so porous, 
it was ideal for building a golf course. And at one point in time, Phones, the, the founder of the country club, basically said any shot that is not penalized, you know, any shot that's off the fairway should be penalized. And he had 380 sand traps on that course. Oh, man. That's like playing on a and beach. It was. And it was, and, and they weren't just sand traps. He would put a bunker in front of the, the one far end of the sand trap. So you couldn't just shoot out of the sand trap towards the green. You had to shoot to the right to the fairway and then go to the green. So he really put some very difficult, all things being said and done, he they took a lot of those sand traps out because the PGA came along and said, look, this is way too hard. <laughs> yeah, so, that's and that, you said that was the Oklahoma Country Club? Oakmont, O-A-K-M-O-N-T, Oakmont Country Club. Oakmont, I got you. Interesting. Well, I don't think I, I know I haven't played there, but if I get the opportunity, I certainly want to take it up. So moving on a little bit here, considering you know, you're from Pennsylvania. Are, are you a Steelers fan? Born and bred. That's it. Well, I, I, when I lived in, so I lived downtown Pittsburgh for about a year and, you know, I, I cheered for the Steelers, but the, the culture and the camaraderie and, and just the black and yellow that everyone just bleeds is, it is a cool experience. And so since you are a fan, I'd imagine you've got a lot of respect for Big Ben. What are your predictions with regards to an extension? And, and do you think Big Ben's going to stick around for the remainders of his career there to, at Pittsburgh? I think he will. You know, one of the things that you, you're talking about, the Steelers being, they just announced the fan base or the, they went through a, a study and the Steelers come out as the number one fan base in the United States. That's, Even more than Green Bay? Green Bay, I think, was second or third. I think the second was Dallas. Okay. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. And I think third was Green Bay, and I think fourth was Boston or the New England Patriots. Okay. I could see that. Yeah. And then, you know, it's it's compared to like Baltimore, unfortunately, it was, um, I think it was, I forget the gentleman's name, it was Goodell, I think his name was, had the Cleveland Browns. He took the Cleveland Browns and moved them to Baltimore. Well, ever since he did, the Browns, when they moved to Baltimore, because Baltimore Raven, Ravens, or I think it was Baltimore Orioles, I forget the name of the team, that they moved to St. Louis. But when they moved back into Baltimore, the Cleveland Browns, the team was never the same. They don't have a fan base like they do here in Pittsburgh. But what's interesting, well, the one thing that, that I think Big Ben will stick around for quite some time. He, he's very comfortable here. He lives yeah. not too far from me. I, I see him in church occasionally. And okay, very he, nice. Yeah, he's he's married with two or three kids. I think he had three kids. And uh, yeah, he's a hell of a guy. He really is. And you meet him. In- well, he's got a he's got such a great fan base, and he's. I mean, I don't read every headline, you know, with regards to sports, but he seemed to have stayed out of trouble and. It's it's neat to see someone like that come into Pittsburgh, sort of set the standard for how a quarterback should be, and for him to ride out his career up the up there in Pittsburgh, I just think would be such a neat story. Yeah, one of the things that is disturbing here in the last year or two was, you know, the Steelers were a team that all the players wanted to play with. They wanted to be on the Steelers football team because of the way that the Roonies had treated their players. And, and really, you know, the Steelers have only had three coaches yeah. in the last 30 years. And because of that, that 
that, that whole environment in the Steelers was always so friendly in that. But in late, the last year, between Le'Veon Bell not showing up for playing last year and now Antonio Brown wanting to leave, two of the, the, the league's best players don't want to stay here at Pittsburgh. And that helps me a little bit because I'm, I'm not sure what's going on on the underlying mentality within the organization. It's, it's disturbing because, you know, you would think that there are people dying to play for this team. Right. Well, so what do you think it is? I mean, is it is it a function of coaching or just a, is it just cyclical or why is that, you think? I don't know. I I, I think it could be, you know, that maybe the, the coach is losing the respect of the team, hmm. you know, or maybe they don't respect this coach the way they, you know, other players do. I mean, you know, I see other coaches having troubles like that because of they, they lose the respect of their team. You see some of the success, more successful coaches in L.A. and in other cities like Belichick and, and Boston. They earn the respect of their players. They don't fool around. They're they're all business. Right. Now, is is that what he's losing with uh, Le'Veon Bell? And I don't know why these. I got some old personal opinions about Le'Veon Bell, but that's that's a second thought. Sec, that's another story. I don't know if we want to broadcast that. <laughs> Maybe on round two we can. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, the Steelers are a great team. Uh, you know, to be in Pittsburgh, we had a, a World Series, and I've seen two World Series in my lifetime here in Pittsburgh. But our baseball team isn't what it should be. It should be more up to par for this type of city. The Penguins have won two. They're looking to try to win a third out of four years in the Stanley Cup. I mean, there's another great sports team. And, you know, between having them, I can remember the one year that we had the Steelers win the Super Bowl, the Penguins won the uh, Stanley Cup, and the Pirates won the pennant. Wow. The city must have been on fire. It was. It was. What city a city cool of champions, experience. we were called. Yeah. Cool. Well, look, we're getting close to time here. So I wanted to give the audience a quick opportunity. Look, if you're interested in one of the best oil field happy hours in Houston, come hang out with me and the rest of the OGGN group every last Tuesday of the month. Come out and enjoy cold beer, food, and the opportunity to network with other professionals in oil and gas. Visit www.oilandgasglobalnetwork.com front slash events for more details. And thank you for listening to Oil and Gas Onshore. If you're looking for more information, visit www.oilandgasonshore.com. And Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, sit with me here on Oil and Gas Onshore. If people want to reach out to you or, or get to know more about your company, how might they go about doing that? I know you mentioned the website, but are you on LinkedIn or or what, what would be the best way to reach out to you or anyone who's really truly looking to uh, to invest with you guys? Well, my email address is hj at com. That would be the, the most expedient way to do it. My phone number, 724-612-7901. They could call me at any time, really. I'd enjoy talking with investors because we have a lot in common. And then the website, again, you could subscribe to some of the information there. Justin, thank you very much for your time. I enjoy talking with you, and I'm looking forward to talking with some of your investors. Awesome. That sounds great. Well, that's a wrap. And always remember, oil and gas onshore, providing energy through innovation for the world, one well at a time. Jim, you have yourself a great afternoon. You too, Justin. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
Tune in next week for another captivating episode of Tendeka's Oil and Gas Onshore Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasglobalnetwork.com. dot